0: one two, two three two,
1: Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland-Kessler, author of the John Lennon Series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon Series at johnlennonseries.com.
2: Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour.
3: blood strikes in the cold night,
2: Over the years, she's worn many hats and gone by many loving endearments. Louise, Lou, Sis, and maybe her favorite one of all, Protector-in-Chief. Of the Beatles' reputations. Since 1963, she's traveled the world over as the flying mum, no, not the flying nun, the flying mum, serving as a surrogate mother and listening ear to two, three, four pretty darn famous young men John, Paul, Ringo, and of course her own little brother George. She's given them encouragement, she's given them friendship, and she's probably given them a few thousand Harrison hugs. And she's not only given the hugs to them, but to the Beatles community at large. She has worked tirelessly to dispel Beatles myths and rumors and to get the truth and nothing but the truth out in the public eye and in the public ear. And speaking of working tirelessly, she has finally written the memoirs of her life and times, thus far lots to come and still lots to do, but thus far, in a lovely hardbound book from Acclaim Press entitled, My Kid Brother's Band, a.k.a. The Beatles. Well, I just spent the entire weekend enjoying this book, its happy moments, its nostalgic moments. It's moments of shock and surprise when our guest tonight set me, the reader, straight on a few well-worn legends that have floated around the Beatles world unchallenged for years. It was a very interesting read, and I am so happy to welcome to the show none other than George Harrison's sister, Louise. Let's see if she's on the line. Louise, are you there? How are you doing? Yes, I have a very, very, uh, what's the word, accurate clock. You do? Well, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, I've got to be somewhere, don't I? (laughs) Well, yes, you do have to be somewhere and we're awfully glad that you're here Well, I have to tell you, I enjoyed the book very much. I mean, it was a journey, everything from starting off at the Plaza Hotel in 1963 and going all the way through the concert for Bangladesh. I was there for all of it with you in that great book. But I wanted to start tonight at the very beginning with the story of that time when you were expecting a baby sister and what happened when your baby sister was born on 25 february 1963 (laughs) well yes i had been a little bit upset that uh, at school i was the only girl
1: in class that didn't have a sister and uh, everybody else had uh, four or five sisters and eight or nine brothers it was a very highly catholic um, community but um, I remember saying to my mom, hey, why don't I have a sister? And she looked at me with a little twinkle in her eye and she said, because if any of the others had been girls, I would have sent them back. But uh, anyway, so w- when I knew that I was uh, that mom was having another baby um i thought well okay this time i guess it's going to be my sister so when i was called into the bedroom that morning uh he was born just after midnight and on the 25th and about 8 hours later i was called into the bedroom and uh got to meet him and uh i was since i was already 11 years old i was considered to be very mature of course and so i was allowed to hold him I remember taking hold of him. He was already ten and a half pounds when he was born, so he was, uh, you know, oh. a good, uh, healthy-looking kid. And so I looked at him. He was, he was like 25 or 24 days after his due date. And I remember for weeks before he came, uh, the neighbours kept saying to me, um, "Has you, you know, has uh, your mum had the baby yet?" And I was saying, "No." And, uh, you know, week after week went by and I started to think, you know, these people must have got it all wrong. Obviously, there's no baby being ordered because I thought, you know, you had to (laughs) order them and then the nurse came and brought them, you know. But um, anyway, so finally he came and uh, lo lo and behold, he had his eyelashes were beautifully grown and curled and his fingernails were all completely grown and uh, his skin was nice and pink. You know, I'd seen lots of these other little newborn things and I I was not impressed with this whole idea of having babies. It just didn't seem to me to be something (laughs) worth doing, you know. Uh, Why have so many of them in the first place? All they did was scream and make noises and everything. But anyway, so when I looked at him, I thought, now, okay, this is worth having. This is great. And so, you know, I fell in love with him right away when he was eight hours old. Oh. And his name was a
2: family name?
1: Well, yeah, I ha- we had um, an uncle. Uh, one of my mum's brothers uh, was named George. And so that day when my dad went to the registrar's office, you know, to register the birth, we hadn't really discussed uh, names or anything beforehand. And, you know, I was named after my mom, and my next brother was named after my father. And then my second brother, we chose the name Peter for him. So we hadn't really discussed uh, this baby's name. So anyway, Dad went off to the registrar's office and he came back and he said, uh, okay, so, you know, what's the baby's name? And he said, George. So uh, we said, oh, okay, why George? So he said, well, if it's good enough for the king, it should be good enough for him.
2: (laughs) I just love that. And that tickled your Uncle George a
1: lot, didn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Uncle George came by a couple of days later and bought some... some boiled ham which was you know back in the wall this is 43 and we still were on very very strict rationing and so you know to be able to get a quarter of a pound of boiled ham to make a sandwich was quite rare anyway he bought this and dad made a sandwich for my mum and handed it to her she was in bed she was uh, you know uh, george was in her arms and as she went to get the sandwich he reached out and tried to put it in his mouth as well and i remember we all we all were so astonished at this you know, two-day-old baby uh, trying to eat the sandwich. So we thought, wow. And uh, somebody made the comment, think he's been here before.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it. That was very prophetic, wasn't it? I mean, that's George. Yeah, that was George. (laughs) Well, you've never really talked a lot about George's childhood years. And and what I read in the book is that you have – strong feelings about sharing that information. Tell us about why you feel that that should be kept private.
1: Well, yes, you know, I've gone to many, many beetle conventions, and one of the reasons why I have done that is because when the whole thing first started, the whole beetle mania sort of erupted, Mum and dad were answering thousands and thousands of beetle letters, and they said to me, you know, it's up to us as the biological family to give back the love to you know to show the fans that we are that we appreciate their support and so for that reason I've always felt that okay that's my role is to be now that my mum is no longer here to be the mum of the global family of beetle people so I've gone to as many many of these functions over the years and of course constantly you know I would answer questions about all of the things that I had um, been involved in with the Beatles, you know, at different shows that they'd, they'd, they'd done and uh, different occasions where I was with them, and I would tell people about what happened because everybody else had seen it happen anyway. But when it came to people saying, "Well, what was he like when he was a little boy?" I thought that now that's not that's that's not my job to be telling them that. Well, uh, that's fine. the only time of his life that he had to himself. The only time that he had any real privacy, and it's got it's it's not up to me to uh, you know destroy his privacy. It's up to me to protect it. And so invariably, I always said, well, I know you'd like to know more about him, but there's nothing about him that I would be ashamed to tell because he was a very very good you know well behaved little boy, very loving and kind, but in honor of his own privacy, and this is while he was still alive, and even afterwards, I said, I will not talk about his uh, childhood because that's the only time of his life that he had to himself. And, you know, even though the fans there would maybe have a couple of thousand fans at a convention, and even though they wanted to know more about George, they always, always applauded my answer. So Mm -hmm. I felt, well, Mm -hmm. they're on the right track
2: too, but they respected that. You know, if I could use any one word, when I put your book down after I finished the very last page and I, if someone asked me to say one word, the word I would use was protector. That's what you've always been. You've always wanted to protect not only George, but the other Beatles and to make sure that people didn't spread false rumors and they didn't tell lies and that the boys. Voice- were shown in the true light, not the legendary or mythical light. And that's what you're doing. You're protecting that childhood, which is the only thing he has that's sacred. I mean, everything else has been raked over the coals backwards and forwards. So, you know, yeah. that we, I know well, that fans well, applaud you for that. Yeah. Well,
1: let's face it. You know, that was the way our parents were. They had very, very great integrity, and they believed in being honest And uh, so, you know, I've gotten into trouble a lot of times, for being honest, but that's okay. I still still
2: haven't learned how not to be. (laughs) That's a good thing, to learn not to be. That's a wonderful way to be. Well, we have several people waiting on the line to talk to you. So if it's okay with you, we'll go to the phone lines. Sound okay, Louise? Yes, I'm fine, yes. All right, let's see. Okay, I always love to talk here. to my global family. So, all right. Well, here is someone from the 360 area code. Hello, listener. How are you? 360 area code. Oh, is you
3: on that the line? Oh, that's me. Okay, you're cutting out just a little bit, Jude. So, I'm, uh, oh, I'm listening about as fast as I can. Oh, that. that's okay. Um, hi, Louise. This is Shelley Germeau. I'm the John oh, Lennon. I know you. You've been, you've yes, I. Know. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered if you were <laughs> going to remember. Uh, the last oh, time yes. I talked to the last time I talked to you, I think it was the late '90s when I uh, submitted a piece for that book that you did called "This Is Love."
1: Oh yes, yeah, that was a fundraiser for my environmental organization. Right.
3: Um, yeah. yeah
1: that, that was great. I think there were a hundred different people. Submitted uh, their Beatles stories, and let's face it, that's been partly uh, one of my um, roles in life is to listen to people's uh, Beatles stories. I've been doing that now for a little over fifty years, and uh, you know I never get tired. And you know it's it's really so gratifying when I talk to people and they tell me these wonderful, wonderful things about what the Beatles have meant in their lives, and uh, you know the, the the joy and the Um, uplifting in many cases, many people who've been going through really, really hard, very, very difficult times, and they've had a particular instance where something about the Beatles has lifted their spirits, and so, you know, it's very, very heartwarming to me, and I feel very privileged to be part of the family that has been able to, you know, give so much love and comfort to so many people in the world.
3: It's so wonderful that you did that, and uh, all the things that you've done for George and connecting with the fans, I think it's just wonderful, and I know that everyone really appreciates it. Well, now I'm even on, a, on another uh cakewood, hopefully we'll talk about that later in the show, but
1: uh, I'm now working <laughs> on a new problem. Um, you know how in the last few years, many of the high schools, or many of the schools throughout the country, have had their music programs defunded, yeah, And so, uh, you know, they're, they're really going through a lot of hardships. So since I have a Beatle tribute band, I've had for about 10 years now, mm-hmm. called Liverpool Legends, we have been going to high schools and, uh, you know, putting on concerts to help raise money for the music departments. And uh, so th- that's something that I'm working on. And again, I feel very privileged to be able to, uh, you know, to help other people just by simply you know, having that connection with my kid brother and the band.
3: Yeah. Well, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was uh, recently I published an article about the tree planting in Los Angeles in George's honor. And I know you were there because Pat Tyson sent me all these wonderful pictures. And so I almost feel like I was there, but uh, I wasn't and i wanted to know how you felt about that ceremony and what your thoughts were about it and well, what you thought particular- george would have thought
1: yeah well you know that particular thing you know knowing that george was so uh, very very strongly into preserving nature and uh, you know wanting us to try to uh, not mess up the planet any more than we are doing uh, i i was really very very appreciative of the fact that uh, you know, since this particular tree had submitted to the blight that was going on throughout California because of the drought, that mm-hmm. uh, they decided, okay, you know, let's um, put a, get a new tree. And uh, actually, it was a yew tree and uh, something that hopefully would be able to withstand all the ravages that go on. And so I knew that, you know, this would be something that he would feel, you know, happy about. And I know he's not very big on all these kind of awards and things because... Uh, You know, he always he always said, "Hey, we're doing what we're doing because we love what we do. We don't have to be, uh, you know, praised and all, you know, given gold medals for it and all that kind of stuff." So he was never into that. But I think, you know, having a tree to commemorate his life is something that he would have appreciated, and knowing that there's now going to be one that hopefully will be able to withstand the ravages of nature, (laughs) uh, I'm sure he'd be happy about that. I am happy about it anyway.
3: Oh, that's great.
2: It's beautiful thing. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for calling in. And guys, follow Shelly at John Lennon Examiner, and she'll keep you up on all the doings with whatever else comes in the next year with honoring George and John and Colin and Rainbow. So um, thank you, Shelly, so much for calling. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye, Shelly. Okay,
3: bye-bye, Louise.
2: Uh, Louise, we have a couple more. Are you up for another call? Sure, absolutely. All right. Hey, caller from
4: 618 Area Code. Hi, Jude. Oh, this is Sarah Schmidt in Alton, Illinois. And say, hi, hi, Louise. Louise, <laughs> yeah. um, right. Louise um, my parents actually met in Benton, Illinois in 1968. They met at a church camp down there. Yeah. So I've always felt a connection kind of to Benton, and I was at the – historical marker presentation in 2013 and
1: oh, that yeah. was really neat
4: yeah.
1: that was quite that was quite an occasion yes yeah. that was to, to mark the fact that it was 50 years since george visited that town and also he had been the very very first beetle to set foot in this country and so uh, they decided to put a historical marker to uh, celebrate that fact
4: Right, but my question is, since I live near yes. St. Louis, um, I know you did a lot of work with KXOK, mm-hmm. and I was wondering a little bit about um, if you could talk about when you went to Chicago to see the Beatles in 1965.
1: Okay. Uh, yes, I can remember that very, very well. I think they were at the uh, the park. I was, actually, I was at two different Chicago concerts. One was at a... Um, uh, ballpark, ball and the other one was at a, a big uh, auditorium. I can't remember which was which. Which was the one in '65? But um, yeah, I, I was there with the lads. If it was the one in the ballpark, I remember I sat in the dugout. But if it was the other one, uh, I was actually in the theatre with them, standing in front of the um, saw horses. So I don't remember which year was which. But uh, I, I was at both of those concerts.
4: And did you go with um, the group from KXOK and Johnny Rabbit and all of those guys?
1: I don't think so. No? Not that I recall, no, no.
4: What about some of the other things you did with the radio station?
1: Um, Oh, golly, there were so many different times when I was up there. You know, they would have, um, you know, little get-togethers at the mall and different places and, you know, invite people to come along and, I'd sign people's uh, autograph books and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't I can't remember them all but there were dozens of times when I did go and, you know, meet the fans and uh talk to them and hug them. That was the main thing, was to give people a beetle hug or a Harrison hug. <laughs>
2: That's right. <laughs> yeah. That is right. Well, uh now Sarah, you're working on the book about the Beatles at Bush Stadium, is that correct? Right. And about the Beatles the um, in the, St.
4: Louis and Beatlemania in St. Louis is what I'm working on. So, do you remember oh, the, right.
3: did you, did you the remember, concert
4: in 1966
1: you, when it rained? Oh, was that the one when I was in the dugout? I can't, I can't remember now. You know, there was. Well, if you, well, if you um, remember
4: the one where it rained, that's the one.
1: <laughs> well, whichever one I do remember being at for concert that rained, but um, I don't remember which one it was. You know, the, in, in those There's years, everything was all, yeah. It was, it, you know, it was uh, so absolutely chaos everywhere I went, and so it was hard to remember in which town you were in most of the time. So um, yeah. a room uh, in a car, in a car in a car room. room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that was. I <laughs> think a line from a line from a hard day's night, wasn't it? in you room. Yeah, that was that was right. Yeah, I love that was it. very much the way it was. Well, you know, Sarah, we didn't know. Yeah. Go ahead, Louise. I was going to say, you know, uh, trying to remember fifty years back. Um, I'm glad I can even remember that I've been around for fifty years. But uh, you know, my memory is pretty good. But for little details like that, as to which concert I was on, you know, which year. And which day it rained? Those are not things I call I can recall. Uh, you know, not right, not just off the okay. top of my
2: head. Isn't it? <laughs> right, right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much, and best well, of lucky, for my call. We cannot wait for your your book to come out.
4: I'm working out. on it right now, so I'll keep oh, you posted. your book.
1: Oh, okay. I thought you meant mine. Well, of course, well, good luck on yours, what is for, this? for sure. What is this, the battle, the battle of the books? <laughs> Are we here <laughs> to see who can who can sell the most
2: books? <laughs> hey, I okay. like that. We can do that. That would that would be fun. Ready, steady, okay. go. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much. All right, Sorry. bye.
1: Bye. Right, bye-bye. bye-bye.
2: We, we have one more. You up for one more?
1: Yes, I'm up for it, yeah.
2: All right, hey caller from 630.
3: Hey, six three zero. Hey, it's kiddo O'Toole, Chicago, kiddo
0: tool. Yes, indeed, it's Chicago, and uh, and uh, Louise, it's great to talk to you. It's uh, you know I saw you at uh, you know some Chicago fest a while back, and uh, you'll have to come back and see us. Yeah, I um, I stopped going to those uh,
1: fests. I think at the end of um, the century. And you know I've been pretty busy doing a lot of other things, but uh, you know I'm always available to talk to fans. After
0: all, you are my global family. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, well. First of all, before I get to my question, I meant I heard you mention earlier your um, uh, your your current you know your cause of of uh, raising money to uh, for music programs in school, and and may I applaud you for that? That that is so needed. Now, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Yes. So many schools have have, as you said, cut these programs, and it's just it's it's you know travesty, really is. Yes. And, and you know the terrible the terrible thing about it
1: is that music not only is fun for the music part of it, but music and art actually stimulate the part of the brain that helps facilitate being able to learn things like science and math. Yeah, so it's not just right. It's not just something frivolous, uh, learning music. It's uh, very, very uh, important to the actual function of the brain itself. So uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's you know again, it's not just some silly whim that we're doing this. It's because it's really, really important to the education of our two children.
2: Absolutely, well, and yeah,
0: sorry, we're well, going to say
2: something yeah. too. Sorry. Now, did you have? Something that you wanted to ask will be something that you know maybe was I know that that you are doing a lot of research about the beatles too. Indeed, yeah, but yes, I'm I'm yet another uh, dreaded author then coming up with
0: another competitor. So, eh? yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> it's on. No, I'm just
0: kidding. We're all a um, global family, we're
2: the global author family. The global
0: author. Yeah. Oh, that's right, Jude. That's a that's a great way to put it. Absolutely. Well, yeah. my my question is, um, you know, you were you know talking a little bit about um, your you know growing up and and uh, I, you know, one thing that I've, I've been curious about is what kind of, of music were you and, and George sort of, you know, raised on? I know George, from everything I've read and, and from, you know, hearing his playing style, you know, seemed to be a big fan of country and so forth. Is that something you were raised no. with? <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> no, that, that was kind of a, a late late coming, you know, it's Carl Perkins and uh, Chuck Berry, people like that. But no, no, we were raised more on Whatever the popular music was of the day, Uh, we had a radio uh, that my Uncle Johnny had made, a homemade radio that we listened to all the time. So you know, we listened to the BBC Light program, as it was called. Mm -hmm. So whatever was popular, you know, the top 40 uh, things. Plus not only that, but we we also, uh, one of the programs was called the Third Program. And that was a lot of classical music, too. And uh, we we did listen to a lot of classical music, you know, like uh, even opera, you know, K- Carmen and, um, you know, a lot of different operas and also, you know, Mozart and Beethoven and all of those people. So we had a very, very um, diverse, um, what would you say, exposure to music, which, uh, it, you know, in, in the long run, it really, really helps to know as many genres of music as possible, because then when you find one that you really like, you don't actually
0: still get rid of all the others. They're still part of your life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely the truth. And, you know, and that showed in in the Beatles' music, too. I mean, all those influences you talked about were all all there. So, you know, uh, obviously your well-rounded background in music, you know, paid off in many ways. Yes, yes, because then you're not just... um, What's the word in a narrow little
1: uh, thing, like maybe you know, one particular genre, like what those crying in your beer songs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we That's before what we, to we say good oh, night,
3: musical.
1: yeah, that was our work, that was our name for country music <laughs> <laughs>
2: crying in your beer songs. I like that. Well, before we yeah. say good night yeah. to Kit, tell us a little bit more about your program for music in the schools and how people can contribute if they want to do that, how they can help you in any way. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully maybe
1: I might be able to talk to you again in another few weeks because right now we have just incorporated as a not-for-profit in order to facilitate this program. Now, we've been doing the program for a couple of years. But we've been doing it completely without any kind of funding, other than the money that we make from our band and using that towards, you know, doing the uh, fundraising. But now that we've, um, we have got a corporation and it is called Help Keep Music Alive, and uh, we will be putting up our own website within a, within the next two weeks, and it will be called Help Keep Music Alive, probably dot org dot com. I'm not sure which. But anyway, okay. um, at that point, we will have, um, you know, the story of what the whole thing is all about. And also, uh, we will have a, a page where people can, uh, can you know, hit, hit a button and make a donation as well. Because that will be of, of tremendous help. Now, what we do is um, we connect with music directors from high schools from anywhere within the United States, and we have already done them in many different parts of the country but um mm-hmm. we connect with the music directors, we send them the charts of the music that we play in our show, and then give them you know two or three months for them to work with their students and you know it can be either um you know orchestra or a band you know marching band or um Sometimes jazz, sometimes uh, choral, and even sometimes we have dance, you know, the students. So it it doesn't really matter which, but if they want to learn the music and be part of the show, then that's fine. Then, you know, when when they've learned it to the point where they feel like they're going to be okay to perform, um, we make sure that we find a good date. We have to have an auditorium that will hold, you know, at least six or 700 people. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in order to make it uh, financially sound. So um, when we know that the auditorium is going to be available for a night, then we make that day, the, you know, the day to do the concert. Then we come in. Well, before that, I do a lot of radio and TV uh, promotion and and uh, newspaper, whatever, in that area. And uh, we get the, you know, everybody coming to the show. And usually we get... we. You know it's pretty easy to get a sell out show for these concerts because you know there's all the, the parents the aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and uh the right. neighbors and everything that want to come and it, The great thing about these shows is it's a little bit different from your normal show that we do in a theater. The atmosphere with all of the people in the show you know in the theater being family members really it's it, mm-hmm. you can almost touch the electricity in the air. The excitement is just so, so tremendous. And then we do the first part of the show, you know, the early Beatles thing, it's like the uh, Ed Sullivan show thing. And then we come to do the um, magical, not the magical mystery show, the um, Sgt. Pepper's part. And at that point, Uh we bring all the students on. And we had as many as 250 students on stage with us. And uh, then Uh the second part of the show, they play the music along with us. And uh, it's just Uh really, you know, the, the, the. the families there in the audience are just like, wow, look at our kids playing with a real professional band, you know, and uh, oh. it's really, really great. And then from the, uh, you know, the ticket sales and so on, they were able to give a really nice chunk of money to the high school to help with their um, their music program. So that's basically thing. That trying to keep it fairly short description, but that's basically what we've yeah. been doing and uh, like i say that what is we're hoping dangerous. to do is Danger. you know to get a lot of um music directors to get in touch with us uh you know to get in touch with help keep music alive and offer you know to be in our program and then there'll be a lot of logistics to it because we need to th- try to find maybe four or five schools within about a hundred mile radius so that we can do, you know, maybe three or four shows within a short period of time. So reduce the cost of traveling and, uh, you know, and get one whole area taken care of and then move to the next area. So uh, there's a lot of logistics involved in it, which is basically uh, mostly my job. And so uh, but we're really looking forward to getting this going, you know, very, very soon and being able to, you know, mm-hmm. keep get to a big, big, Point where it's really really been successful yeah it's great I, and, I, and I know, know that my whole family out there I know are going to help because they've been great all the rest of my life
2: we will spread the word uh, Kit Wright for Beatles fan magazine and for something else reviews and several other places we will spread the word you just let us know when you're up and running and ready to roll and we will get the word out there sure
0: yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Well, thank you. That's Love the good. wonderful work you're doing. Yeah. Well, hey, you've got to do something. Don't just sit around
2: <laughs> and <twist> your thumbs. <laughs> True <laughs> enough. Well, well Kit, thank you so much for calling me in. We
0: appreciate it. You're welcome, my friend. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you
2: soon. All right. Well, Louise, let us Let's go back a little bit in time and talk for just a second about right after your son was born, George, who's still living at home with your mom and dad in Liverpool, wrote to you and connected with you and congratulated you, and then the two of you started corresponding, and he starts telling you about this new band that he's in, and the band is going to Scotland. What did he tell you about that trip, that tour of Scotland? Yeah, well, uh, I had lived in Scotland
1: when, when I first was married, and Mum and George actually came up to visit us in Scotland, and uh, we went through, I was living in Inverness at the time, and we also took a trip out to um, the island of Skye, uh, so he he really enjoyed you know being in Scotland. So anyway, when when he um, went to Scotland, he uh, you know he was enjoying it. And he sent me a postcard showing me the. Hotel where he was staying at, and actually put a cross on over the window where he was staying. And uh, he just, you know, enjoyed it. It was a, a new experience for him going on tour. But um, yeah, he, he always, you know, he always kept in touch with me and wanted to know uh, what did I think about what he was doing. And of course, I'm a bit of a ham myself, so you know, I was 100. I was, in fact, if they had a girl in the band, it probably would
2: have been me, you know. <laughs> I can see that, and, and you're so pretty. I love all those pictures of you with your blonde hair and your beehive do and the pretty suit that you have on. I think you would have fit right in. Well, I don't know. Because <laughs> now I'm just a little old lady, but that's, that'll happen to all of us. too. <laughs> Well, then the next trip was a trip to Hamburg, and I just love the story of them loading to go to the Hook of Holland with that van, that green and white van of Alan Williams, and George clutching the tin of his mother's scones. Was your mother, were her scones famous or his favorite thing or something like that? No.
1: Um, Well, give me that story again. I'm not familiar with what
2: you're saying. They're leaving to go to Hamburg. They're leaving they're leaving to go to Hamburg from England and Alan Williams is having his van loaded onto the ferry to go across oh, they're no. gonna drive, you know, no, no, no that was a that was a made up bit
1: stones. that was in No, that was a made up bit that was in a movie that they did.
2: So but it's in that's Alan's what, book too, the why why people not, away.
1: Yeah. No, that's <laughs> why I'm not familiar with that. That was just something they made up for in the
2: movie. He so wasn't sorry. Gone. That was just. I love it. See now, there you go. We learn something new every day.
1: Uh,
2: I love it. Well, one of the true stories that I really enjoy the most in your book, My Kidder's Band, is this beautiful story about what your parents did at the party after the Royal Command performance. Great, great story. Tell us that story. Oh yes. Uh, after the, um, yeah, after they all finished
1: the Royal Command performance. They went to wherever it was, uh, Savoy Hotel or somewhere like that, to have this um, um, reception with the with the royal family. And uh, when Mum and Dad got there, the, the party was already in progress, <clears throat> and uh, there was a, a band, you know, a, I should say an orchestra playing, you know, very dignified sort of dance music, and uh, everybody was all very very uptight and you know just at this function. And mum and dad came in and they said, oh, gosh, you know, this is is a little bit uh, sad and weary, you know. So they had been (laughs) for many years. They had been teaching dancing at the um, social club for my dad's job. You know, my dad was a bus driver in Liverpool, and they had about, I don't know, 6,000 employees for all the buses in Liverpool. And so... uh, they used, mom and dad used to teach dancing at the social club, and then they also used to be the MCs of the dances that they would have on a Saturday night. So they were quite proficient, uh, not only at dancing, but also at getting the whole thing going and, you know, getting the atmosphere going. So uh, they looked at each other and said, okay, we've got to do something about this. So uh, they went, mom went over to the um, orchestra leader, and she said, oh, okay, um This is when they were stopped in between songs. And she said to him, do you know, and she gave him a whole list of music that she and my dad danced to. And she said, do you know these songs? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one, know that one. And so she said, well, would you start playing those? So he said, sure, okay. So the next thing was, he started playing some of the music she'd get, you know, recommended. And so Mom and Dad got up and started dancing. And what they used to do at their um, social club was they would start the dance and then they would separate and dad would go and get a lady and mom would go and get a guy and then they'd dance together and then they'd separate until they got the whole floor, you know, the whole people in the place dancing. So they started doing the same thing. Before about ten fifteen minutes, everybody was up dancing, having a lot of fun, and the band kept playing the music that um, mom and dad had recommended. And you know, the, the party turned out to be a great party. So anyway, um, that you know, that was that, and they they had a good time. But the next year, when they did the command performance for, I guess the next movie for the help or whatever, um, they huh. went to the party again, and so <laughs> dad. Dad said it was so funny because when they walked into this uh, the ballroom again, the um, orchestra lead, it was the same orchestra, it comes rushing over to my mum, and he says, oh, Mrs. Harrison, what should we play tonight? We never ever had so much fun at one of these events since the time you were here. Uh, you know, so uh, she, she was like, the master ceremonies immediately. So Dad, George never ever had heard that story, and I told it to him many many years later, and he says, "Oh, that's our mum for
2: you, you know." <laughs> I love it. She <laughs> was just leading the pack. You're setting the tone for the whole evening. Well, there are so many good stories like that in the book, and people are going to hear things they haven't heard before. I mean, that's a, that's a typical, wonderful, new, and refreshing story they've never heard before. So, guys, it is my kid brother's band, a.k.a. the Beatles. You don't want to miss it. Now, Louise, I don't know if you've had a chance to see Ringo's video for his brand new song, Postcards from Paradise, but... As you're watching it, all these postcards are floating through the air and landing on tables and so forth. And one of them that keeps appearing on the screen says, don't ever give up. And I started thinking oh. as I was reading your book, yeah, that, you think that's that an homage to always, George and to yeah. your dad? Yeah, that
1: was what yeah, he always I, said I, to I you it. think, he, yeah. Oh yeah, it it could have been a postcard that Dad's even sent to him. I don't know, but no, that was Dad was very, very uh, well known for that. Um, His always his advice to us, and that's why I'm still trying to get my help keep music alive going. You know, I mean I may be 83, but that doesn't mean I'm ever going to give up. You know, because my Dad said never, 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 never give up, and we we didn't, and that was same was true during in 1963. When I was trying to get the radio stations in this country to play um, my kid brother's music, and they were all looking down their nose at me, it's like, why aren't you in the kitchen, young lady? You know, you're not supposed to be messing around with men's business. (laughs) And uh, so, but I kept on going. I I thought, well, I, I don't care if I'm not official or anything, I'm still going to keep on going until we get this happening.
2: Right. Right. And you and you really uh, communicated back and forth with Brian and George Martin in these efforts to get the records played, didn't you? Yes, yeah. In fact, I've got a bunch of their letters still.
1: And uh, I think maybe one of these days I might um, see if some millionaire wants to buy them. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've got all the letters that they wrote to me saying... Uh, you, you know, do you think you might be able to do something with this guy's
2: records as well? <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. you were really their liaison. You were—I love what you said—that you were their research, development, and promotional arm of NIMS, and you definitely <laughs> were. But you found there were a lot of differences between British radio and American radio, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, the whole thing was in Britain.
1: All you need is uh, if somebody will play a record on the BBC, that's the entire country is going to hear it. Of course, Britain's only the size of a couple of states in this country. But in this country, back, especially in 63, even more so now, um, you know, in order to get national coverage, there was no way that going to any one particular radio station was going to help. And there again, too, there was an awful lot of stuff called payola going on back then, too. And it was a matter of you had to have, you know, either a lot of clout or a lot of influence of some kind or other, hopefully uh, financial. Of course, that's still going on today, isn't it? <laughs> financial influence. Yeah, anyway. But anyway, um, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, not necessarily in the music business either. But th- that was the case then. And so I started getting all of the music uh, papers, you know, of, of its um, cash box and billboard back then. They didn't have Rolling Stone. But I was studying those um, those magazines and learning all everything I could about the music business. And then I would write to, you know, to um, Brian and George Martin and Dick James, who is their music publisher as well, and uh, try to tell them, you know, how the whole thing works over here because it was very, very different. And I said, you know, you really wow. need to get with a major record label, somebody that's got a lot of clout before you're going to get much help, you know, getting stuff on the air. Because even if you've got a couple of, you know, small minor radio stations to play it, it's not the same as getting the whole national coverage, you know. So uh, uh, one of the things I found out was after a while that uh, Capital... I told Brian that um, Columbia, RCA, and Capital were the three major ones in, in this country at that time. And so I discovered that Capital was also um, under the umbrella of EMI and they were with EMI right. in England so I said hey you know try and get them with capital and so he did he started trying to get capital to um, you know to take them on in this country but capital kept turning him down for several times mm-hmm. and until finally they did you know take up the option and decide to do something about it and of course uh, that's kind of when it
2: all started to happen Yeah, yeah, it did, end of 63, beginning of 64, and, of course, in February of 64, they're here, and you're going to New York to see George because at this point he can't come see you. You know, you would be inundated, so you're going to the plaza to see him, and he's reserved you a room, and you have such a hard time checking in because everybody's saying they're George's sister, but you finally do, and then you find out that he is sick. And you yeah. introduced to your three new brothers, John, Paul, and Ringo, and your new sister, Cynthia. Tell us about that day. Well, again, it was, uh,
1: you know, extremely exciting and chaotic. Uh, I arrived at the hotel um, shortly after they'd arrived, I suppose, about maybe an hour after they'd arrived. And... Uh, George had left a message for me at the front desk saying, you know, come on up to, um, what, 14, whatever the number was. And they said, you know, just come on up. So I checked into my room, which is on the sixth floor, and, you know, got my stuff up and went back up in the elevator. And that's another thing, too, um, going up in the elevator with an elevator operator uh, that reminds me that that's one of the jobs that has disappeared off the face of the earth. Now that we have a button that you right. can press in an elevator, and that's gotten rid of a whole bunch of employment in this country and That's something that concerns me is they keep on replacing people with buttons, and unfortunately, that's one of the reasons why we have so much unemployment but anyway, went up in the elevator, and when I got up there, I was heading to their room, and there was a great big mob of people in the corridor and I was trying to you know scoot past them nice and quietly. So, uh, as I'm going through this big bunch of people, the big Pinkerton um, officer security guy grabs and holds me by the shoulder and he says, Where do you think you're going, sister? And I thought, Oh, well, he knows I'm a sister. (laughs) So dumb and (laughs) innocent I was back then. And uh, so I said, Oh, I'm just going to see my brother. Uh, The whole bunch of people burst out laughing and they said, Do you have any idea how many times that's been tried today? And I looked, you know, yeah. a bit startled. No. And so they laughed again. And so, uh, you know, I was a bit put out, but I was being persistent. I said, no, but he told me to come. And so they were getting a bit annoyed with me. So they said, well, do you have any proof of who you are? So the only thing that I had was the picture that is now on the back of my book, which mm-hmm. was a picture taken in Benson in 1963 when George had come to visit me. And it's a picture with George holding my daughter, if she was about two or three years old, holding him, holding her in his arms, and me, and then my other brother Peter. And that picture is on the back of that book. Anyway, uh, that was the picture that I had, and so I showed it to them, and they said, "Oh, yeah, that does look like one of those guys." So they went along to the <laughs> room and. Uh, got him, and he came dashing down the corridor, and they let me go ahead, and so the next thing was, you know, George kind of hugged me and spun me around, and then all the people that had been laughing at me then started cheering, so that was what
2: happened. (laughs) They changed their tune. Well, of course, when you found out you were so ill, you you were put in charge of taking care of him. And I don't want to give all the stories away because I want people to buy this book. And as Louise said at the end of the book, don't buy it and let someone else borrow it. Buy it and then tell them to buy their own copy. You know, I feel the same way you do, Louise. People always say, oh, I read your book. It was so good. I gave it to everyone in my family to read it. Like, oh, gee, thanks, you know. But it is a great book, and one of my favorite stories is how you got that loud, rowdy swarm of DJs to be quiet and let George sleep. And I won't tell it, but people need to read that story. We are almost out of time, but I wanted to to ask you before we run out of time about – uh, Liverpool Legends, your band, because they have done a wonderful job for us at Beatles at the Ridge for the last two years, and they're coming back again next year. They're so fantastic. How did you meet them, and and where are you where are you guys going from here besides your music program? Yeah, well, I met them in Chicago
1: just about two or three weeks after my brother had died. And uh, the guy who plays George in the band, Marty, his name is, um, he was playing George Stage, and I was at the back of the theater, uh, you know, watching the show. I'd been invited to a, you know, a kind of a Beatle reunion week. And so uh, after the show was over, we all had dinner together, and I got talking to, uh, you know, to George. And so we, we just kind of hit it off And I've often said I have a kind of spooky feeling that, uh, you know, wherever George's spirit had gone after he left the planet, that he kind of took a look around the planet and found him, you know, found a George character that could, uh, you know, be a substitute brother for me. And uh, this guy, Marty, has been a wonderful, wonderful brother ever since. And, in fact, uh, you know, the whole reason why we started the band was, you know, so that... uh, You know, I'd have an income in my later years. And so we're doing a wonderful, wonderful job. They now have been, um, I don't know, just so many different places that we've been where people say, you know, this is... I I don't go around saying it's the best Beatle band because I'm not... You know, I'm I'm British. We don't do that. But so many other people (laughs) have said that it's, you know, the best they've ever seen. So... uh, if, you know, we do have the Liverpool Legends website, and I hope people will uh, take a look. Actually, on Thursday, I'm heading up to uh, Mexico City. I think they're playing for about 20,000 people there. And then wow. the week after wow. that, I'll be going up to uh, Wisconsin. We'll be playing a show in Wisconsin. But uh, if you check their website, I don't always go with them anymore, because I've been busy doing this other thing, you know, to try to get stuff going with the nonprofit. But... Um, you know, if people watch, just take a look at the website and see where they're playing and, uh, you know, catch them. It's really, it's really a very, very good show. I wouldn't have my name on it, you know, unless I felt very, very confident that my mum
2: and dad would not be annoyed at me. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, you, a lady even accused them. They were so good that the lady came to you and said, they're not singing the songs. You're playing records, didn't she? That's right. She was really angry with me because I, I gave, gave this little
1: talk, um, a video presentation where I explained that everything that they see and hear is live, but, you know, it's the guys playing and singing and everything. And she was just really, really mad. And she said to me, you're telling lies. That I listen to Beatle music every single day and you're playing Beatle records. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have to say to the guys afterwards, I said, you know, maybe
2: you should throw in a mistake now and again. I like that. Well, they are amazing, and we can't wait to have them September 17th and 18th at Beatles at the Ridge for the third time, and I hope that you'll come with them and, and visit with all of us. We are really looking forward to having them there, and uh, you know, Louise, I look at all the things we wanted to talk about tonight, your presence and your dad's presence at the concert for Bangladesh, and the the Beatles shows that you did all across America. There's so much that we didn't get to talk about, but it's all in the book. My Kid Brother's Band, a.k.a. The Beatles by Claim Press. How can people get it, Louise? Um, as far
1: as I know, it's at all of the Barnes and Nobles, and I think um, Amazon has it as well. And the Claim Press itself um, could probably guide people. Now, I think um, I'm going to be starting to do a few, um, you know, signings at some of the Barnes and Nobles around the country. So, uh, you know, whenever that happens... Um, you do the show every week. I do. Oh, okay. Well, I can I can uh, email you the information of where I'm going to be if you're interested, and then you can you know can I'll, let people know if, if they're
2: interested. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do have a link on this radio show page, so this show is going to air Thursday night at 9, and it will be downloadable for months. So there's a link there as well, and any time that we can do anything to help you, just give us a ring, especially when you get your program for the high school up and running. Sure, sure that would be wonderful, because let's face it, it's not really so much helping me as helping the kids out there as well. That's right. You're so right. Well, we yeah. thank you for being on the show, and thank you for writing such an honest account of the last 50 years of your life, interwoven with, of course, the amazing life of the Beatles and your sweet brother, George. So thank you for that yeah. piece of history and for being so careful with the way that you wrote it and the way you told it. Well, as they, they used to say that George was painfully honest, and he came from
1: a very painfully honest family, so uh, that's the way it is. And thank you very much. Well, we appreciate. Love, yeah, yeah. My love to all of the Beatles, my Beatles family out there. I do sincerely love you all, and I hope that you all have a wonderful life and keep on listening to that great music. We will. Thank
2: you so very much. I hope to see you soon.
1: Okay, dear. All right. Bye,
2: Good night. Good night. Now, next week there will be no John Lennon hour. Why? Because I'll be winging my way to Rye Brook, New York for the New York Metro Fest for Beatles fans at the Hilton Westchester Hotel. That'll be March 20th through the 22nd. And I hope you guys will be joining us. It is going to be a fab, fab, fabulous weekend. I'm going to be doing three presentations that weekend. On Friday night, join me for Cynthia Lennon. The Fifth Beetle. We're going to talk about why Cynthia really and truly has a good candidacy as the Fifth Beetle And we'll be reading some excerpts from She Loves You to prove it. Then on Saturday, I'm going to take you on a virtual walking tour of Liverpool off the Beatlin Path. And we're going to see some sites in Liverpool that you haven't seen before. Not the same old, same old thing that you see every time. On Sunday at 11 a.m. on the main stage, the early bird performance to kick off the day, we're going to do 180 hardest days of the Beatles' career, the spring and summer of 1964. So join me Sunday morning on the main stage for that. After I come back, we are going to have some amazing John Lennon hours First, the riotously funny and wonderful Dennis Ferrante, John's dear friend and his sound engineer, and then several distinguished authors that you're going to really want to listen to, Jonathan Gould, who wrote Can't Buy Me Love, Dave Swenson, who wrote The Beatles in Cleveland and The Beatles at Shea Stadium, and Andrew Grant Jackson with his brand new book about 1965 and how it is the most stupendous year in history of music ever. And speaking of these authors, throughout Louise's book, she takes time to comment and to give her opinion on political matters and on all sorts of things. And she's inspired me this evening to tip my hat to a group that I believe in, those dedicated Beatles authors who give hours and hours of their time, hours of their time, to research and double, triple, quadruple check facts to make sure that the history of the Fab Four is preserved for posterity. You know, not all people are as fortunate as the guests that I've had on my show for the last two weeks. Last week, Angie and Ruth McCartney, and this week, Louise Harrison. Not all people are that fortunate to have actually lived a life with a Beatle. But some people, nevertheless, are inspired with a dedicated heart, a servant's heart, to pursue a career that really pays nothing other than the rewards of knowing that you're preserving history, the history of the Beatles, for those who will follow. They've made a career out of reading, studying, and comparing notes and striking out myths and errors and downright lies and compiling facts to the very best of their ability so that the true story, the true story of the Beatles will be recorded. You know, these selfless Beatles authors sacrifice time with their family and their friends to do this work. And bravo to them, to these scholars and researchers of the truth. You don't have to have lived with a beetle to be able to tell an accurate story. Carl Sandburg never met Abraham Lincoln, but he wrote the single most respected work about Lincoln's life. And Michener's 1,000-page study of Darwin's life and career is also singularly remarkable. You don't have to have walked with someone to be a scholar and to study and to get their story straight. Yes, Beatles authors make errors. They make mistakes here and there. But there's never been an author who set out to write a bad book. All of their intentions are good, and they work hard to do the very best that they can to cull through the myths, the errors, and the lies to preserve history. And so to them, tonight, a nod And a very sincere thanks. I hope to see all of you March 20th through the 22nd at the wonderful Fest for Beatles fans. Be there or be square. Until then, ta and shine on.